You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I don't have to tell you guys who Harvey Milk is, but just in case, gay man elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, San Francisco City Council, in 1977, led the successful fight against an anti-gay ballot initiative backed by Anita Bryant, who was then America's most prominent and really effective anti-gay bigot slash activist. And then Harvey was murdered, assassinated in 1978. Anyway, I wanted to open this week's show with a clip, a clip from Milk's most famous speech, his hope speech. It's a long clip for the top of the show. It's about two minutes long, but I think it's worth it, and I hope you'll indulge me. Somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there's a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes that she or he is gay, knows that if the parents find out, they'll be tossed out of the house, the classmates would taunt the child, and the Anita Bryans and John Briggs are doing their bit on TV, and that child... Had several options, staying in a closet, suicide, and then one day that child might open a paper and it says homosexual elected in San Francisco and there are two new options. The option is to go to California. <laughs> stay in San Antonio and fight. Two days after I was elected, I got a phone call and the voice was quite young was from Altoona, Pennsylvania, and the person said, thanks, and you've got to elect gay people so that that young child and the thousands upon thousands like that child know that there's hope for a better world, there's hope for a better tomorrow. Without hope, not only gays, but those blacks and the Asians and the disabled seniors the S's, the S's, without hope, the S's give up. I know that you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. And you, and you, and you, you've got to give them hope. Thank you very much. I was that child, that kid Harvey Milk was talking about, the one who opens the paper and reads Homosexual Elected in San Francisco. In the fall of 1977, that November, when Milk won that election, I think it was his third race, I was 13 years old, and I read about his election in the papers, and I saw Milk on the news, and he gave me hope. Thanks to him, and thanks to the movement that Milk was a part of, I knew I had options besides the closet or suicide. Which brings me to a study released last week, a really solid study published in the reputable journal JAMA Pediatrics that documented a drop in suicide attempts by LGBT young people in states that legalized same-sex marriage compared to states that hadn't yet. A 7% drop, which sounds kind of small until you consider how many LGBT youth attempt suicide every year and until you translate that 7% drop into real numbers. Because that 7% drop means 134,000 fewer suicide attempts every year by queer youth. Andrew Sullivan, writing in New York Magazine, beautifully captured why and how marriage equality could impact queer youth in this way. People, of course, who are too young to marry themselves and impact them so profoundly. 
In the old days, Sullivan writes, as soon as you realized you might be gay, you understood immediately that you'd never be worthy of the marriage your parents or siblings had. That knowledge often pierced the young psyche with shame and stigma. Almost by definition, many of these most troubled kids don't and won't acknowledge their feelings and so are resistant to counseling. But with legalizing marriage equality, there is another way to reach them, by the law itself telling this invisible and silent group that their state sees them as equal to their peers. It's an anti-suicide measure all by itself, requiring no counselors, carried in the general atmosphere, removing or decreasing stigma. So, marriage equality? That gave them hope. Not the hope to marry someone when they grow up, necessarily. For many of them, yes, it gave them hope of that, even for most of them, perhaps. But not every queer kid wants to get married when they grow up, just like not every straight kid wants to get married when they grow up. But the law tells all lesbian, gay, and bi kids that they are worthy, as worthy as their straight peers, of marriage. Some gay and bi kids are lucky enough to get that message from their parents, from their peers, maybe, from their preachers, liberal ones, and teachers, progressive ones, but not all, and nowhere near most. And think of all the images that were generated when marriage equality came to a new state. All those couples in the news being embraced by their friends and family members. Those images and those stories reached people who needed reaching. People who were hard to reach. Those queer kids. And it helped. It gave them hope. The law and the media and communities all telling them that they are equal to their peers. Those images said, and continue to say with the now routine coverage of same-sex marriage, those images said and continue to say, you may feel alone, but you are not on your own. Right now, your parents may be against you, and that can change, but your government, your state, is on your side. Which brings me, distressingly, to a decision taken by the Trump administration last week. Trump scrapped a directive issued by the Obama administration that said federal anti-discrimination law required public schools to let trans kids use the appropriate restrooms, the restrooms that align with their gender identity. Now, some are out there saying that there isn't much to this. Nothing really changed last week because a federal judge in Texas put Obama's guidelines on hold last year before they could even take effect. But this move, it does real and immediate harm. Because what you've got here is the most powerful man in the world, Donald fucking Trump, telling the most vulnerable children in the world, trans and other non-gender conforming children, that they don't matter, that they aren't equal to their peers, that the law and the state isn't on their side. If being told you matter, if being told you're equal to your peers under the law can drive the suicide rate down, being told the exact opposite, being told that you're less than, not equal, not valued, that can drive the suicide rate up. So what Trump did last week, that's going to kill trans and other gender nonconforming kids. And that is not an exaggeration. You got to give them hope, like Harvey said. Right now, the government under Trump is stripping hope away from trans kids. And you know what? We're not going to let that happen without a fight. We are going to fight to protect trans kids and dreamers and other immigrants and refugees and children, U.S. citizens whose undocumented parents may be deported. We may not be able to stop the Trump administration, but we can fight it. And seeing people get in the fight against Trump now, like watching Harvey Milk fight and ultimately defeat Anita Bryant then, that'll give them hope. It'll help them see that they have options and allies, and that, all by itself, the fight will save lives. Give them hope. Get in the fight. Resist. 
All right, before we get to the show, I just want to say, if you haven't seen the excellent documentary about Harvey Milk, The Times of Harvey Milk, you should definitely find it and watch it. And if you haven't seen Moonlight, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture on Sunday night in a flawless and smooth award ceremony, you should watch that too. And on today's show, lots of Q, lots of A, some D, and Randy Kreger, an expert on borderline personality disorder, joins us for the Magnum Savage Lovecast to discuss dating issues around bipolar disorder you can subscribe to the magnum savage lovecast twice as long more questions and guests and no ads at savagelovecast.com hey dan so my 61 year old dad has recently opened up to the field or the world of kink and he's kind of sort of in a uh, no details way telling me about it and it happened because he started a relationship with a younger woman um, which has since ended but I guess now he has discovered quite a bit about himself and I'm super excited for him but I think he's feeling a little down in the dumps after ending this little fling that he was involved with also before he was involved with her He had been single for like eight years and was not involved with anyone in any type of way during those eight years. So as you can imagine, you know, he's feeling a little weird, but I really am super happy for him that he's discovering something about himself at the age of 61. And I want to be a good daughter and I would really love to point him in a direction. I told him about that life. But other than that, I guess I live a pretty vanilla lifestyle myself. So I was just wondering if I could get some advice on how to tell my dad how to explore his kinks. I would really love to kind of give him some confidence and see him make new friends and, you know, have fun and stuff. So if you have any suggestions, please let me know. Yeah, I have just one suggestion. Boundaries. Boundaries are my suggestion. You want to be a good daughter, and it sounds like you're a really good daughter. And in my opinion, a good daughter is happy for her dad. Happy he's making new friends. Happy he's out there having sex. Even happy he's having his heart broken once in a while. But a good daughter is not out there micromanaging her dad's sex life. You pointed him at Fet Life. It's now on him to make an effort to get out there, to make some friends. You could say to him, look, you got out there, you made an effort, you made a connection. It wasn't for the rest of your life, but that's evidence that you could make another connection with another woman. There are kink events, there are conventions. You know, I was working on a letter on spanking for the column next week, and I wrote to Jillian Keenan, the terrific author and writer who's a lot more than just fetish and kink and spanking, but she's written about that too. She's got a great book out called Sex with Shakespeare, and everyone should read it. She's been a guest on the podcast. And I wrote to her about how this person could tap into the non-sex, no PIV, no PI anything, spank fetish community scene. And she sent me back a list in a minute. She sent me back a list of seven annual spanking conventions all across the country. So what's the lesson there for your dad? What's the moral there for your dad and my interaction with Jillian? There are lots of kink events going on all over the country all the time, munches, meetups, conventions, and other kinksters are in a much better position to direct him to those events, to the community he wants to be a part of and how to tap into it than you, his vanilla daughter, ever could be or should even want to be. Your dad 
is an adult. He is 61 years old, presumably not infirm and not clueless. My suggestion is that he get out there with your tacit, slightly at a distance, don't need to know everything support, and do this on his own. Hey, Dan. This is a 27-year-old lesbian calling from the Boston area, and I have a question for you. Um, I'm in a little bit of a pickle, and my girlfriend and I listen to your um, podcast every week. We just love you, love you, and I'm finally presented with a question that I really need some help with. So um, long story short, my dad and my mom divorced when I was a baby and my dad has not been in the picture. Um, my mother recently passed away. Um, and my father who I do not speak to, but I am very close with his parents has not even reached out to offer his condolences to me or anything. He really hasn't reached out to do anything in my entire life, but, um, he, is coming to visit um, and he's going to be staying at my grandparents' house who live like five minutes away. And I am feeling a little upset. I'm, I'm feeling like there's some displaced anger towards my grandparents for even being okay with him coming to stay and not even mentioning to see me. And I just don't know, should I just continue going on being quiet? Because I know you always say, you know, when it comes to your parents or your family and situations like this, your presence is all that you have to offer them. Should I continue on with just keeping the silence because I am so angry and so hurt by the person or lack thereof that he has been my entire life? Or should I go over there and confront him? Um, I'm really nervous about it. Typically, I would just ignore the entire situation, but I really kind of need your help. So I have a question for you before I answer your questions. Do you want to have a relationship with your dad going forward? Or do you want to sit with your anger for the rest of your life? And honestly, I'm not baiting you. I think you are justified. I think you have a lot to be angry about. And you could sit with that anger the rest of your life and not have a relationship with your father. I do think, though, you need to have some compassion and empathy for your grandparents and the impossible situation that they've found themselves in being torn between their desire to have a relationship with their granddaughter and their love for you and their love for their son, even if they recognized his faults and what a deeply shitty father or not a father he was to you all these years. So I think you need to do your homework before you decide whether or not to confront your dad. I think you need to go talk to your grandparents. Sounds like you're mad at them too. You need to talk to them. And I wonder if there's not kind of a family-wide trait at work here, an emotional strategy, because you say... Do I continue on just keeping the silence? Typically, I would ignore the entire situation. Is that what your grandparents have done? What you also are going to do in this emotionally fraught situation? Instead of opening up to you about how they feel about their son, instead of directly addressing the shitty, impossible, fraught elephants stomping all over the room, they sidestepped it. So they've never really had a conversation with you about how they feel about their son and the way he's treated you. And so now finding out after your mother's death, and my heart goes out to you, but finding out after your mother's death that they're welcoming this man into their home, you feel personally betrayed. And I think you feel that betrayal deeply because you don't understand where your grandparents are coming from. You don't have an, you don't empathize with their position, not because you lack empathy generally, but perhaps because you've never discussed it with your grandparents. You don't know what they're thinking. You feel that this is a betrayal 
them welcoming him into their home, a short five minute drive from your house without discussing it with you, without helping you brace yourself or prep for it, without making contacting you a condition uh, that they imposed on him for them welcoming him into their home. You need to have a talk with your grandparents about what they think about the last 27 years and what they think about their son and listen to them, listen to what they have to say about, again, I think the impossible position that they found themselves in, wanting to have a relationship with their granddaughter, also wanting to have a relationship with their obviously deeply shitty kid. As for whether you go and confront your father, yeah, go and confront your father. What the fuck do you have to lose? You don't have a relationship with your father. He hasn't been a father to you. You have questions you would like to ask him. He owes you some explanation. And if you go in there and you confront him and you get nothing out of him, then you did what you could do. And you have the answer that you need to continue on as you've continued without a father in your life. And if it blows up and if it's ugly, then it just will cauterize the wound. It'll affirm the choice that, not that you've made, the choice that was imposed on you to be a fatherless child with a father rattling around out there in the world. But who knows? You never know in a confrontation like that what might shake loose. Maybe you'll have a screaming fight and make some sort of connection that allows you to not rebuild the relationship. There never was a relationship, but to have some sort of contact going forward if that's what you want. And, you know, not to go all cycle babble on you, perhaps that is what you want. Perhaps you wouldn't feel this strongly about his visit uh, and you wouldn't feel this anger so deeply if you didn't ache on some level for a, a connection to him or if not a connection to him, an answer from him that will explain, not excuse, his absence in your life. Hey, Dan. Uh, late 20s, straight cis man living on the East Coast. Uh, I was calling to see if you could shed any light or give your opinion on when having a type turns into fetishization or uh, just outright racism. Uh, this, I, you know, There's been a lot of really good conversation about how this weird kind of creepy obsession that a lot of straight guys have with Asian women is really racist because it's tied to these orientalizing stereotypes of Asian women and how that's really fucked up. And I had a conversation with a friend recently because we were talking about people we're into and it came up that she's really attracted generally uh, to South Asian men. She's had at least one boyfriend who's of, I believe, Japanese descent. And I also mentioned that I happen to find Desi women, South Africa or South, excuse me, South Asian women, you know, from India and Pakistan, also really attractive. I can't give any specific reason why. Um, I just for several years have just thought, uh, you know, women from that area, a lot of women from that area can be very attractive to me, and I'm not sure why. And I'm trying to be introspective and get into these emotions. So I was wondering if you had any opinions or if any callers could add opinions to that. Um, Is having a type that's based on, you know, race and ethnicity, is that inherently racist? Is that something that, uh, you know, requires more introspection? Um, I would really love your thoughts on it. Before I answer your question, let's talk about a really kind of icky article in Time Magazine from a few years ago, Nine Ugly Lessons About Sex from Big Data. So they data mined dating websites like OkCupid and others, and they came up with some really depressing facts. Straight men think women have an expiration date. Straight women are less likely to express sexual desire than other demographics. Searches for Is My Husband Gay occur in states where gay marriage is least accepted. And number five on their list, 
Is this disturbo? Asian men are the least desirable racial group to women. And I'm just going to read the whole paragraph. On OkCupid, users can rate each other on a one to five scale, while Asian women are more likely to give Asian men higher ratings. Women of other races, black, Latina, white, give Asian men a rating between one and two stars less than what they usually rate men. That's depressing. I think that's sad for Asian men. I think it's unfair to Asian men who are just as likely to be hot and attractive, conventionally or unconventionally, as other men are. But there are cultural stereotypes about Asian men that pounded into people's heads that they are less virile, less masculine, and consequently for many women and many gay men, less desirable. So when I hear a question like yours, where there is a woman out there in the world who is attracted to Asian men, particularly the last thing I want to tell her on behalf of Asian men is to not act on that or to feel terrible about that. Asian men are already at this disadvantage in the dating pool because of racism. So you find someone who's attracted to Asian people and you scold them for being racist and you make that racist, unfair dating pool even worse by removing people from it through guilt who are primarily attracted to Asian people. I think that's not helpful. Of course, someone can be attracted to certain racial or ethnic groups for racist reasons. But I think the larger problem is people not being attracted to people from certain racial or ethnic groups for racist reasons. It is fine to have a preference. People need to interrogate those preferences, as they might say on a college campus. They need to wonder whether those preferences are actually theirs. If they are attracted to the types they believe themselves to be attracted to because those are the types they're attracted to and the only types they're attracted to, or because those are the types that were assigned to them by the culture, by racist beauty standards, by shitty families that we might have grown up in that communicated to us, maybe not verbally, but socially and in other ways, what was not acceptable as a partner. So I find myself in this weird position when I get questions like this, because I am so cognizant of this fact, because I hear from people who have a hard time out there in the dating pool because they are from a what is in the United States, a, a racial minority group. Yeah, you need to think about who you're attracted to and why. You need to, if you're attracted to a, a certain racial group or ethnic type, you need to ask yourself, am I seeing this person as a stereotype? Am I attracted to a cultural trope? Am I attracted to some Gilbert and Sullivan operetta version of what an Asian woman is? Or am I attracted to Asian women and, and able to recognize that Asian women are as complicated and multidimensional and as individual as any other type of woman is? And if the answer is the latter, don't spend a lot of time beating yourself up about it. Get out there and act on it. Same goes if you're attracted to Asian men primarily. Interrogate it. Think about it. Make sure that you aren't only attracted to some Western Orientalist, in your word, stereotype that you carry around in your head about who or what Asian men are. But then if you can get to a pass, go for it. I find it highly revealing that these aren't the sorts of questions that people who are attracted only to people within their own racial or ethnic group are ever confronted with. I wonder sometimes if there isn't some racial stay in your laning about how people are, are treated about this, that it's the people who are moving out of their lane who are made to feel or attracted to people who aren't in their racial lane or ethnic group are made to feel guilty are are hounded or, or, you know, if they're good liberal progressives are hounding themselves about this are interrogating themselves about this and never letting themselves off the fucking hook. But in answer to your question, I guess, yeah, racists can have types, but not all people with types are racists. Hi, Dan. I had a really 
unusual experience last night. I went on a Tinder date with a guy I had been talking with really casually for like not that long, maybe just a couple weeks and thought that we were connecting really well, better than pretty much everyone I've tried to talk to on Tinder. And I was feeling hopeful for the date, but my expectations were pretty low still being kind of the reality of many Tinder romances. And um, the date didn't really go very well. We were walking over to this bar where some of my friends were DJing. And I realized that I wanted to end the date because I didn't want to feel responsible for him at the bar because I love to dance and I didn't really want to babysit someone or let them get in the way of my dancing. So I was sort of stalling and I was smoking a spliff outside the bar talking to him. And I, the whole time I'm like trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. Then out of nowhere, things just got really weird. And I'm not quite sure how the conversation led to this because I'm still sort of baffled by it. But he just tells me that um, he was sexually abused by his parents and grandparents. And I was really um, caught guard. Then I told him I wanted to end the date. And we parted ways and left feeling a lot of guilt about the way this played out and also a lot of frustration. One of the most awkward dates of all time, but also one of my most triumphant moments, knowing that I wanted to make a decision for myself and for my own good. Just wondering what you thought, maybe what I could have done different to maybe support him more, but also like I don't really know him and I'm not looking to inherit his problems. Okay, let's for a moment set aside the elephant on that Tinder date outside while you were smoking that split, the bomb he dropped, your date dropped, and talk about, and I'm not blaming the victim here, but talk about the mistakes that you made on that Tinder date. Two big ones. The first one, and we've covered this, don't invest weeks of time in text and or email exchanges after you've established a mutual interest with someone that you've met on a dating app. Meet quickly because you never know how you're going to feel once you are face to face with this person what your chemical reaction to them is going to be whether they're going to present themselves as well in person as they do via brief texts so you want to meet up quickly the second mistake you do not want to have an open-ended first date with someone that you're meeting through a dating app i've talked about this a lot but apparently people don't listen to me so maybe People will listen to Philip Galanes, who writes the social cues advice column in the Sunday Style section of the New York Times. And a week or two ago, he had some advice for a woman who was having problems with people she was meeting on Tinder. She was going on these dates with a lot of buildup. First mistake, not a lot of buildup. Establish mutual interest. Meet quickly. Don't build it up for weeks. Don't fantasize. And then she was going on these open-ended dates like you did where she felt trapped. And Philip says, and it's good advice, schedule these meetings before yoga or dinner with friends. Philip writes, think of them as little hors d'oeuvres in your day, not the main event. Caller, what you needed was an out. I'm meeting up with my friends later to do X, and you are not invited to this thing later that I'm doing with my friends. I have a hard out. I have plans after this. Let's meet up quickly for coffee. Meet up quickly for a cocktail, and then I have to be at X and you are not invited to X. 
So those are the best practices. Don't make a huge investment before meeting and be sure that first meeting is limited duration. Be sure you have a hard out from that first meeting. As they say in LA, a hard out. Now about the bomb he dropped, you have nothing to feel guilty about. He put you on the spot and by sharing that with you, he was demanding something from you that really you didn't owe him. The kind of emotional support that he might be owed by family, of course not the family that molested him, the kind of emotional support he might be owed by true friends, by people he knows well, by the therapist that hopefully he's seeing, they owe him the response that you feel guilty for not giving him in that moment. All you owed him was an expression of empathy. That's terrible. That's too bad. I'm so sorry. That sounds like something that you need to talk about with a therapist. That sounds like something you need to lean on people who know you very well. We don't know each other very well. We just met. I cannot provide you as your Tinder date this evening with the kind of emotional support and comfort that it sounds like you need. And then you make your exit. So you made your exit. I hope you took a moment to express some empathy. If you didn't and you're feeling guilty, you can. You're not obligated to. You can send him an email, send him a text via the app saying, it was nice to meet you. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I hope you're getting the help that you need and I wish you well. And if he doesn't understand that that means you do not wish to see him again and he keeps coming at you, then you have to say, look, dude, I'm not interested in pursuing this any further Please stop communicating with me. Hey, Jen. I'm a 30-year-old gay male from the West Coast. A couple of years ago, I had come out to my family, um, and I did so by sending an email. I was at work in the middle of the night. I sent an email out to my mom, my dad, and my sister. And my mom, uh, of course, being a mom, was just insanely supportive, and to this day is insanely supportive. Uh, so was my sister, who already knew. Um, my dad uh, never replied. Um, my mom and dad are separated, so my dad lives by himself. And uh, my dad apparently had a major breakdown, uh, was very hurt and upset, um, didn't reply to my email, didn't reach out to me. And so there was a long period of time where we didn't talk. Um, and he was telling family members that, you know, he had no son, he disowned me, he, um, you know, he doesn't approve of the gay lifestyle. And I never made an effort um, beyond one phone call. I tried calling him the week after I sent him that email um, to try and talk to him, but he didn't answer his phone. Uh, he's the person who always answers their phone no matter what. So I know that, you know, he just needed some time or whatever. But all this time has elapsed, and it's, it's coming up to three years now. We haven't spoken, and we used to be very close. And just hearing him tell family members that, you know, he is not going to reach out to me, he doesn't want to talk to me, he's disowned me. But I'm hearing from my family members that, you know, I should make more of an effort, that I need to be an adult, that I need to respect him as an elder and understand that culturally or, you know, from his, you know, he's in his early 60s at the time he grew up, you know, being gay wasn't acceptable and he's very strict Catholic and that I need to understand that and try and make more of an effort to try and talk to him or just go show up at his house. And I don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm, I feel hearing that, that he's disowned me, that he hasn't shown me the courtesy and respect of even just writing back a simple email. I'm perfectly content never speaking with him ever again. And I, I've, you know, I can sleep at night knowing that. 
but everybody in my family, not everybody, but a lot of people are saying, well, I, you know, I'm being immature that I, you know, that I should be doing more to try, at least try to repair our relationship. Um, you know, and I asked them, well, have you, have you told him the same thing? And they said, well, yeah, but he, you know, he's stubborn. So it's, you know, it's excusable for him, but it's not excusable for me. And I, and I get that this is childish, but am I wrong that, you know, I, I shouldn't be doing more to try and repair my relationship with my dad when he's literally told people that he has no son. He ran into one of my high school friends and said that I was dead to him. I mean, which is pretty fucked up um, considering that he's a, a hardcore Catholic and, you know, Catholics claim to be these peaceful, loving people. Um, so any advice you have would, would help me out. Uh, like I said, I, I sleep at night just fine knowing that I might never talk to my dad again. But, um, you know, there's a little part of me that feels bad and that misses my dad. Before we get to the question, just quickly, Catholics, American Catholics, are more supportive of gay rights and gay marriage, and a significant chunk of American Catholics mistakenly believe that Pope Francis supports gay marriage. But American Catholics are more supportive of gay rights, more supportive of gay marriage than any other Christian denomination in the United States. So Catholic, all by itself, does not get your dad off the hook that he hung himself on with this shitty behavior. Of his. Also, age doesn't quite get him off the hook. Yeah, he's in his 60s, which means he's a younger man than my mother was. And my mother, who was very, very Catholic, Catholic lay minister, married to a Catholic deacon, she came the fuck around. And your dad has it in him to come the fuck around on this issue. And if he's 60 something now in 2017, that means he was a young man in the 70s, 80s, and a young middle aged person in the 90s and aughts. So he knows better. And the conflation with 50s, 60s, 70s, and I don't know any gay people, and this wasn't accepted when I was a young person, we can't continue to make that statement. We can't continue to make that argument because somebody who is 60 now, it was the late 80s, 30 fucking years ago, and queer people were out and coming out in ever greater numbers. And increasingly, people knew the queer people that they knew, particularly the gay men and lesbians that they knew. They came to know that they knew them. They always knew them. They just said, no, they knew them because most gays and lesbians weren't out. But as people came out, people came to know the queers that they knew, your father included. So age and Catholicism, yeah, no, bullshit. Bullshit excuses for his bad and terrible actions. That said... I don't think this is a question about your relationship with your dad. I think this is a question about your relationship with your other family members, including people that you're going to be sharing important moments with and milestones with for the rest of your life. I'm thinking siblings, if you have any. I'm thinking cousins, if they're close. I'm thinking aunts and uncles who may be significantly younger than your father and that you may be seeing around for many, many years. And I think it may be in your own self-interest to make a move not for your father's sake and not with any expectation that he's going to have an epiphany or come the fuck around, but as a gesture to your relatives to demonstrate to them that you were indeed the adult. And I wouldn't be telling you to do this if they hadn't also tried to work on your dad. You say that they've been saying all these things to you and you rightly said you should be saying these things to him. Stop telling me to be an adult. Stop telling me to not be the asshole. He's the one acting like a child. He's the asshole here. And then later in your call, you point out that they have said these same things to him, but quote unquote, he's stubborn. All right, I'm not accusing you of the same kind of stubbornness. What he has done to you is as about as emotionally violent uh, an act as a parent can inflict upon a child. This disowning and you're dead to me and all this shit. Horrifying. In your own self-interest, though, 
you making a gesture, you being the one who knocks on that door that one time, not for him, not for your relationship with him, which is probably cannot be revived, but as a gesture towards all the other family members who may be caught in the middle, all the other family members who would like you to, to reconnect, for you to be able to say to them, I went to his house, I knocked on the door, he slammed it in my face. There's nothing more I can do. And I'm not going to keep showing up at his house so that he can treat me this way, so that he can inflict more acts of emotional violence upon me. I tried. And so that one that one act on your part, that one showing up at the front door, it gets you off the hook for the next 10, 20, 30 years, however long your hateful old bullshitting about Catholicism and age father lives, you are off the hook. And I think you say to your relatives, particularly the ones who are pressuring the most, you want to see this reconciliation happen? You're coming with me. And you're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with me when I knock on that door so you can see how I'm treated and you can see what goes down and you can see that I tried. Hi, Dan. We're a semi-open swing couple living on the west coast of Canada. My partner and I have a very strict rule about using condoms with others. We met another couple a few months ago and really like them. Let's call them Scott and Cheryl. We've played with them three or four times now, and we spend non-sexual time with them as well. While they are both very sexually open and active, they are still new to the lifestyle. When the four of us play together, everyone seems to really enjoy themselves. The guys are bisexual, so there's lots of oral play all around. While Scott seems to be having a great time, he never gets hard. Scott gets plenty of oral attention from the three of us, but he doesn't seem to get hard long enough to actually fuck me. Everyone else seems to be having a good time, and we really don't question it too much. We don't want Scott to feel pressured or weird about it. Sometimes he apologizes afterwards, saying it takes him a long time to get hard. Last week, out of the blue, Scott messaged me, apologizing for never being inside of me, and said it's a condom thing. I assured him that I had been having a good time and left it at that. We understand that condoms don't work for everyone. We want to make Scott feel comfortable, and we don't want to make a big deal out of this. But I'm worried by not addressing it, are we coming across uncaring about his pleasure? My question for you, Dan, how much are we responsible for Scott's erection? If he can't fuck me because he doesn't like condoms, should I be feeling bad? Should we have an open four-way discussion about it or just let it slide? Love to hear your thoughts. I'm trying to think of something that might make it harder for a guy to get hard than a four-person meeting call to discuss whether or not he's getting erections in the moment or not, but I really can't come up with anything. That seems like the enemy of any potential future erections Scott may have, that conversation, that meeting, that conference you want to call, that Potsdam conference you want to have about partitioning Scott's erections. So I am definitely in the anti-call a meeting to discuss this problem I bet that Scott is nervous. My hunch is that Scott's a little self-conscious, that Scott hasn't been able to get hard in the moment, in these four ways with you guys. Bet you anything that he's hard after. Bet you anything he's jacking off about this shit later and hard with the wife later. And so he rolled out a fall guy. He rolled out a patsy. He pinned the blame on condoms. 
his latex fall guy, to take the pressure off him and off his dick. He just said, you know, I'm really sorry that my dick hasn't been there. I don't want you to be self-conscious about it. And some women are. You know, sometimes a dude can't get hard. The woman thinks it's her. So this may have been motivated in part by Scott's concern that maybe you were feeling self-conscious about him not getting hard in these moments. And he just wanted to take the pressure off and say, hey, condoms, they're kryptonite for my dick. And your proper response is not to loosen your boundaries around condom usage. You should stay firm yourself when it comes to condom usage. The proper response is say, no big deal. If and when you can get hard in a condom long enough to fuck me, that would be great. Looking forward to that. If not, oral and rolling around and mutual masturbation and whatever else the four of us want to get down to is great, is fine, is, I don't want to say good enough because it makes it sound like all that shit is a consolation prize. It's great sex, mutual masturbation, oral sex, rolling around in a heap, the four of you. It's great sex, whether or not Scott's dick gets hard enough in the moment to fuck you. So stick with condoms. You might want to get some female condoms and see if that doesn't help. Perhaps you wearing the condom, a female condom, might make it possible for Scott to get hard. But otherwise, don't even bring it up again. Just have your sex dates and no pressure and definitely condoms for penetration. And if he gets hard, great. If he doesn't get hard, no big deal. And he's not to blame. You're not to blame. The condoms are to blame. Hi, Dan. This is a 27-year-old from New York. And I've been in a relationship with a guy that has borderline personality disorder. I've been in a relationship with him for four years. And I kind of come to a crossroad where I'm curious, how do you distinguish love, codependency, and or addiction? Joining us by phone to help tackle this question, Randy Kreger is the author of the book, Stop Walking on Eggshells and the Essential Family Guide to Borderline Personality Disorder. Her website is stopwalkingoneggshells.com. Hey, Randy, thanks for jumping on the phone. You're welcome. So just quickly and briefly, uh, for those who are not familiar or may have just heard BPD or borderline personality disorder tossed around but aren't, you know, don't know what that means exactly, can you tell us what that means exactly, what we're talking about here today? Um, I want you to imagine a sun as drawn by a little kid. There's a little circle and then there's rays coming out or little triangles. Inside of that sun is what's going on inside of the person with BPD. The rays are out there is because you're going to see different things from the outside, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. For example, let's say that, uh, that my mother died. On the inside, it has to do with two things. Number one, emotion, and number two, thoughts are the big things. And basically, this person, even if they don't seem like it, they're really terrified of being abandonment, excuse me, of abandonment to the point where a woman wouldn't let her boyfriend go out grocery shopping. She was afraid. Or they might want the, their lover to call them every five minutes. But one big complaint is that I can't work. My wife keeps calling me. I can't get any work done. Okay. Another one is that they don't really know who they are very, very well. So they tend to kind of merge into the person that they're dating. Or they may uh, have different religions. They may go, uh, obviously, this is a larger issue. But in, with BPD, they might have a lot of sexual identity confusion. Mm -hmm. Their moodiness is extreme to the point where we've actually put people under magnetic resonance imaging where you can take a picture of it as, it, as it's live. And when you do that with a person with borderline disorder, you can see the emotional parts of the centers of the brain going boom, 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 
boom. Meanwhile, the prefrontal cortex, the reasoning and the logic just goes way, way, way down. How common is borderline personality disorder? Well, we used to think it was 2%. That's what's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Mm-hmm. But a, a 2008 study re-looked at it, so it went from 2% to 5.9%. So her question is seems pretty simple. She's obviously in a relationship with someone with BPD, borderline personality disorder, and she wants to know at this point what the difference is between love, codependency, and addiction. And I think she's referring here to herself. Let's go through to codependency first. A person who is codependent is very giving and caretaking, but it's laced with control and expectations. So essentially, with a codependent, what you've got is a person who feels most loved and most cherished when they are needed. And the the more they give, the more they expect in return. So she's not sure if she's in love with this guy or if she's in love with taking care of this guy or if she's addicted to this guy? The codependency part, which is really the more important part, is I need to take care of this guy because once I take care of him, he'll really understand how much I've done for him and how much I love him and he will be mine forever. And that will be so great. So she just, you know, if you find somebody who really needs help and you put value on yourself based upon how much you can help people, those two things are like two puzzle pieces that go together. Right. Because you have this desire to be loved for how helpful you are. And here's somebody who needs a lot of help. A lot of help. And there's an element of control in there because as giving as the person is, it's also saying, listen, I don't like the way you're doing this. I don't like the way that you're doing that. You really ought to do it my way. So the person is very, very, very nice. But the person is really kind of trying to control because that's how they get their love. So why you have one person who gets their love from giving and the other one who gets their love from getting. Codependency, if codependency is about I'm going to fix this person, love addiction is Barbie in her Malibu dream house waiting for Ken. And the, the be-all and end-all of life is that wonderful moment when you're first going out with somebody and all those chemicals are just coursing through your veins and you can't wait to hear them on the phone. You know, you're not interested in the deeper intimacy. So the love addicts always find something in the next person. If that person doesn't work out, you know, hearts and flowers. If you watch Orange is the New Black, there's a character, I think her name is Lorna, born with the accent. She can't wait to get married and she's got all of these bridal stuff going around and, you know, she's always trying on this wedding dress and the person who's in love with the wedding. Yeah, but so so I think we can eliminate, you know, she's in a relationship with someone with borderline personality disorder, BPD. And I think in asking, how do I tell the difference between love, codependency and love addiction? She's asking, do I need to get the fuck out of this relationship? And we can eliminate love addiction based on your definition because uh-huh. that's someone who's in love with falling in love. and is probably wanting a new partner isn't going to be committed to the long-term sort of grind of intimacy and that, that kind of love. So not addicted, perhaps codependent, but how do you tell the difference between codependent? I mean, she probably has to look into herself to tell the difference between she's being codependent. She's staying in the relationship to fix him, expecting this sort of jackpot of affection and gratitude from him that may never be coming. Or is she in love with him? And I, and I think she's probably asking this question because she wants permission to leave. This is, this is the kind of question someone asks when they want permission to I go. I totally agree. Is it ever okay to leave a partner who has a serious mental illness or are you obligated to stay? 
Well, Dan, you're the one who's the chief of, hey, you're allowed to go if the sex isn't working. <laughs> well, that, that's why, I mean, everyone knows where I stand on that issue. You know, uh, I don't think, yes, the, yes. The, the, then it's not a relationship, it's a hostage situation. And you're not obligated to stay forever because somebody else is damaged or, or hurting, and then you must stay and be damaged and hurt yourself eternally or for five or six decades. That you have a right to act in your own self-interest and put yourself first, even if you're in a relationship with someone who may need a more gentle leave-taking, may need help transitioning out of the relationship. You may have to go to greater lengths extricating yourself while being compassionate and considerate and understanding, but you don't have to stay forever because that person is hurting. Let me just make an aside there. Okay. Getting out of a relationship with a borderline can be a very dangerous thing. You've heard of men who like go kill women and then kill themselves. I personally think because of the annihilation of the self, remember I talked about that self before, Mm -hmm. it can be very dangerous. So just so you know, just a little aside there, if you do want to break up, there are protocols. I've got a whole chapter on it. I've got, I got three chapters on it, but one is called leaving the right way. So legally speaking and safety wise, there's a protocol. Um, But you asked me, is she codependent or is she in love? Of course she's in love. And of course she's, I shouldn't say she's codependent. I don't know her, but if she's asking the question, we can assume what you basically do is you have to figure out, okay, these are my values. I value monogamy. And then your boyfriend is unfaithful or your girlfriend is unfaithful. It's extremely common because they're always looking for fresh love and affection. And they always want to have somebody on standby. So you have to understand your values and then you have to be able to live your values. And then you have to be able to answer the question, is is this person not doing it because they don't want to or because they can't? Those are always two important things to know. At a certain point, it doesn't make a difference. Like somebody once said about Donald Trump, is is he a racist or is he playing to racist? It doesn't matter. So there comes a certain point we don't like but the way I'm explaining in this book is if you go, if you understand your values, if you can set limits with love, and if you can see what happens, does this person respond to you? Does this person have respect? Does this person have respect for your needs? And if that person does not have respect for your needs, and your needs could be as simple as don't yell at me versus I want a sexually intimate relationship versus clean up, uh, I want you to do the laundry once a week. If that person isn't interested in your needs, and that's what happens. See, people with borderline disorder are very, very self-focused because their emotions are going up and down all the time. They're like at a, at a the developmental level, level of a kid. It's very, very much like living with a kid, very much. If the question is around being hurt, and I like the reference you made there to Donald Trump. Is he a racist or is he just playing to racist by saying and doing racist things? Doesn't matter. If you're in a relationship with Doesn't somebody matter, yeah. who is hurting you – and you are being hurt, do you have to stick around if they don't mean to hurt you or they can't help hurting you? And I think the answer to that question is it doesn't matter. They're hurting you. And if they can't stop or won't stop, and you should fucking get out. You should go. Period. Period. I'm done. You should just go. I think you're fucking right. (laughs) But here's the problem. There's a difference between saying lose weight and losing weight. Or I'm going to start an exercise program. One is in your head, okay? You are dealing with the logical gray Spock matter. I am dealing with what's going on in the person's heart. And that doesn't 
you, you know that the limbic system and that our emotions and all of that is so tied in. One thing I should mention is that these relationships always start out to be the most wonderful, fantastic things. Somebody once said, I felt like, a, like I met a member of my species for the first time. They start so good that it's hard to give up. And this is going to sound strange and sexist, but when borderline women, for some reason, they tell me, seem to be more beautiful. And it's like, oh my God, look at, I'm just a schlub and I have this beautiful woman. And what makes, here's the thing though, that really makes it hard is every once in a while, that person comes back. And especially if you feel like you're going to leave. In fact, people even came up for a word with it. I don't like it, but it's called hoovering as in the vacuum cleaner. The minute you start to wander away, they'll pull all of that back in. They sense you're kind of starting to get to the point where you can't take this anymore. Bam, because they're afraid of abandonment. So it it makes it very difficult and it needs to be done with a therapist. If I was going to say you need a therapist to find out why you're staying and you need a therapist to help you leave. Randy Krager, author of Stop Walking on Eggshells and the Essential Family Guide to Borderline Personality Disorder. Check out her website, stopwalkingoneggshells.com. Thank you, Randy. Thank you very much. Hey, Dan, 26-year-old guy here from the East Coast. Uh, my hookup buddy, who is 25 and I have been friends for many years, uh, we grew up in the same small town, two hours from where we live now. A few months ago, her and I were hanging out when she received a message on Facebook, and immediately I could tell she was upset. And she told me this. So growing up, she took classes at a martial arts center in our small town. A guy that taught there was well-known around the town. This guy was about in his 30s, and now he's in his 40s. She told me that when she was 13 through 14, this guy was her teacher and had made several advances on her, asking her if she wanted to feel what it was like to be fingered, to give him a blowjob, etc. She says nothing ever actually happened and that she would just laugh it off and try to ignore it. And again, this was happening until she was 14 and finally moved on to a different teacher. Now, I knew this guy growing up and he used to make some weird, creepy comments about my girlfriends at the time, but I just laughed it off. Over the years, he still tries to reach out to her and will even get mad when she ignores him. Of course, my first instinct is to tell this creep off, and I said she should, she, rem- she should say she remembers him and to never contact her again. She really expressed that she just doesn't want anything to do with him. She doesn't want to contact him. She just wants to forget it ever happened, and she made me promise that I wouldn't do so either. So now this guy still teaches kids in our small town. I have friends who have kids that are taught where this guy works, and I'm left in a position where I don't know what to do. I've considered sending him an anonymous email. I've considered reaching out to the people I know to say, don't send your kid there. Now, I have have to acknowledge, and I do trust what this girl says. I've never known her to be a liar at all, but who knows? Maybe this story could be exaggerated, and I run the risk of ruining this guy's life. Or if it's all true, I run the risk of exposing my friend to backlash from this guy if he could put together that she outed him. I don't know what I don't want to cause this girl any more pain, but if this is true, then there are probably more victims of this. I don't know what to do, man. Any help would be appreciated. Love the podcast. Thank you. Your friend who shared this with you put you in a morally compromised position where inaction on your part may lead to other young women being sexually harassed or worse. Odds and stats and research shows that if he did this to her, to this friend of yours, to one student, he's done it to others and is probably still doing it to students. And I think you have to go to your friend and say, we can't be silent in the face of this because other young women, girls, 
are vulnerable and may be being abused. And who knows how long this has been going on or how long he's been getting away with this because people wanted to avoid the confrontation and the ugliness. It can't be avoided. Avoiding the confrontation and ugliness in a situation like this allows the real ugliness, a worse ugliness, to metastasize like a cancer and potentially destroy people's lives, including the lives of other girls that you know, the daughters of friends of yours. Yeah, you have to act with or without your friend. And you can go to her and tell her that you're going to do something. You'd like to do it together potentially. But if not, you're not going to alert him. You're not going to give him a warning. You're going to go to the school. You're going to go to the administrators. And you're going to present them with a letter outlining what you've been told, what you know. Also, like you did at the end of your call, outlining what you don't know. But putting the administrators on notice. Look at the Sandusky affair. Look at the Sandusky rape scandal at Penn State, which went on for, what was it, decades, a decade and a half. And people knew that Jerry Sandusky, including Joe Patero, whatever the fuck his name was, they knew that he was raping boys. And to avoid confrontation, to avoid scandal, they said nothing. And this went on for a very, very long time. And top people at Penn knew about it, but they didn't know that other people knew about it and would hold them to account for it potentially. And what you can do by walking into that school, by walking into the administrator's office, you can present them with a letter that says, you are now accountable. I know this happened or I believe this happened. You are accountable now. You have to investigate and you have to intervene. If you've known that this is going on and you've done nothing or if you suspected this is going on and done nothing, you must act now because not just the lives of these girls or the safety and, and, and health and mental health of these girls are at risk. You are saying to these administrators who may be complicit in their inaction in these abuses, that they will face the music too, that there will be consequences for them too. Because not only do they know, if they know, but now they know, you know, they know potentially, and they will have to act. I'm sorry that this may put you on a collision course with your friend. It may even put your friendship uh, at risk. You may lose a friend over this, but... And for the other girls in that school, even if you had no connection to them, you have to act. Hopefully your friend, when you talk to her about it, will see that you indeed have to act. And with or without her, you will act. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi-cis man and have been in a monogamous relationship with a woman at work for four months. She has a flirtatious relationship with a married guy at work that predates our relationship. They do yoga and lunch together and meet up for private dinners and weekend hangouts. Every day and every evening, they chat with each other on social media and text, share funny pictures and videos, which are sometimes sexually charged. They do this nonstop. When they planned a yoga date, he joked about reserving the spot right behind her, implying that he wanted an ideal view. He recently sent her an Instagram photo of a glass dildo, and his wife is none the wiser. I've asked many questions and made my discomfort known, but she can't stand my discomfort with this friendship. When I ask her if they have been physical or sexual, she says no, and that she would never cheat on me. But nonetheless, I feel uncomfortable and anxious. I see this guy every day at work, so I have little opportunity to take a breather from the topic, and it's taking me over. I try to get over my own bullshit and chill the fuck out, but nothing is working. I was hoping that my non-aggressive, honest approach to this would have her change some of her behavior with this guy, but instead, she tells me I'm overreacting and acting crazy. 
I've never asked her to end the relationship. I would never do that, but she is unwilling to make any sacrifices for me. Sex has already become infrequent because the conversation is taking over. I worry that I will become less attractive to her and she will feel annoyed, not trusted, and abandon our relationship entirely. I'm clearly having trust issues. What can I do? We listened to your call a couple of times, all of us did. And the sense of the Senate here is that your girlfriend is fucking this other guy. But let's set that aside. Let's not even think about that. Let's pretend that there is no other guy. Let's pretend that there's some other reason that just four months into this relationship, the sex is falling apart, that you guys are at each other's throats, maybe about some other issue, not some other guy coming to yoga to look at your girlfriend's ass, but some other issue you guys are at a falling out point about how much more investment are you going to make in this relationship if the sex is collapsing at four months and you guys are fighting at four months about something that you just can't get on the same page about? Seems to me that just four short months in, you might want to pull the fucking plug and walk because at four months, you should still be kind of in the honeymoon stage. At four months, you should still be fucking the shit out of each other and making moony faces at each other in restaurants, much to the annoyance of couples of much longer duration who have to look at how happy you are and remember what that felt like and think that's never going to happen for me again because I married this asshole. Yeah, at four months, that's how you should be feeling. If this is how you're feeling at four months, even if there was no other guy that she probably is fucking but might not be fucking, you should walk. All right, let's game this out now. Let's say she's fucking this other guy. You say you're bi. You say you're in a monogamous relationship. Is an open relationship something that you would contemplate? Is that something you would be up for if it was above board, if it was an ethical non-monogamous relationship and a consensual non-monogamous relationship? If she was fucking this other guy at work and dating you or dating you both, is that something that you could see yourself doing? If so, maybe you toss that on the table. Maybe by tossing that on the table, you will get the truth from her about whether or not she's fucking this guy and she probably is. And maybe then if you guys had a consensual non-monogamous relationship, you could fuck other guys at work or elsewhere too. Maybe not everybody at work fucking each other. Maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe you could fuck guys who aren't at work, but you could fuck other guys too or other girls too. If you had a consensual, above board, ethical, honest, non-monogamous relationship. At the very least, now let's game out. She's not fucking this guy. At the very least, the way she interacts with this guy would cause a reasonable person like you or like this guy's wife to believe that she is fucking this guy because they have no boundaries because they chat and flirt like two people who are fucking or desperately want to fuck and will soon fuck. And that is if she were single, not an issue. It's an issue for his wife, but not an issue necessarily for her. And we don't know what's going on in their marriage. Maybe they have a companionate marriage. Maybe his wife is asexual and he's allowed to do what he wants outside of the marriage. Who knows? But she would be in the free and clear if she were single, but she is not single. She has a boyfriend. That would be you whose sense of emotional and sexual safety and security and primacy she has to answer for. She has obligations to you. She has to accommodate and work with your feelings and your insecurities, and let's say that these are just insecurities. Let's say she's not fucking this guy, and she is. But let's say she's not fucking this guy. It's inconsiderate the way she interacts with this guy in front of you because any reasonable person would look at these interactions and conclude that she's fucking him or about to fuck him. And if that's not allowed, if you are not down with a non-monogamous relationship, 
And you are certainly not down with a non-monogamous dishonest relationship where she's fucking other people and you're not allowed to fuck other people. Then you need to pull the plug. So we're back really where we were six, eight, ten minutes ago when we tried to set aside the issue of the other guy, the other guy at work, the coworker that you have to see every day and just talk about four months together, sex falling apart at each other's throats, irreconcilable differences. You should pull the plug. And we are back now again after gaming this all out. We're back to pull the fucking plug. Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gal in Chicago and been married almost a year and a half with my husband for almost seven years. And we've been talking about an open relationship for a really long time, years. I'm the one that brought it up years ago. He never was really that interested. I knew that I'd want to seek women, definitely, because I, I, I like being with women, too. And one time in our seven-year relationship, one time I hooked up with one. And it was great. And that was a couple of years ago. Really recently, I told him I wanted to have a threesome. I thought it'd be a great way for us to get back into the conversation of an open relationship. And I said, hey, let's seek out a woman to have a threesome with. And we've both been doing that. Um, The holidays just ended. And a few days ago, my husband told me that at his work holiday party, he started flirting and had a really good interaction and what he thought was the beginning of a possible relationship essentially with this woman he works with. And right now they're uh, grabbing drinks and talking about maybe us having a threesome. But what he told me is that he also wanted to have the option of maybe hooking up with this woman without me. Dan, I'm, I'm sitting here in just this jealous, like explosion of feelings because I wanted this. I got what, what I wished for, I guess you could say. Because I'm supposed to be careful of that because I I guess I because he had said before he didn't feel that he'd ever really want to hook up with a woman on his own. Now he's off maybe pursuing that and I've had like three days to get used to the idea. But I didn't want to say no because of my past experiences and the real belief that I think this is right for us and that our future would benefit from this. And we could have so much fun together and separately with people in an open relationship, kind of a monogamous arrangement. And we have talked about guidelines, but I'm still just jealous as hell, Dan. What do I do? I'm so jealous. Hey, it's Dan Savage. Why are you in a tin can? I was in the bath. I was trying to relax. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to you in the bathtub? You're naked and wet? Well, now I'm down and out, so I don't myself or anything. But. I dragged you out of a bathtub. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Well, for your call, you know, <laughs> happy to talk. <laughs> so thank you for getting out of the bath for us. <laughs> my pleasure. Uh, I had a follow-up question for you. That's why I'm calling, and it's a pretty simple question. The jealousy that you're experiencing when you contemplate your husband getting with this woman from work alone, is it jealousy, jealousy, and anger, fear, jealousy, or is it a kind of horny, delicious jealousy? Which variety? Oh, it's it's, it's the horny one, which is why it's squeaking me out so much, (laughs) I think. I'm like, wait, I think it's hot. 
I would be more squicked out by the rage jealousy than the horny jealousy myself. <laughs> no, it's not rage. It's 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 a little bit of fear, definitely, and it's definitely like taking me by surprise how hot I find it all. Um, and I guess I don't want to let that side of me be in control and then like crush my emotions. Oh my god. <laughs> Why not let that side of you be in control? Because what I hear you saying is, you know, he wants to do this thing solo, but there's still something in it for you. That the thought yeah. of him running off and fucking this woman makes you horny. He's going to come home. You're going to tear the pants off that man before he's all the way back in the apartment or the house <laughs> and fuck the shit out of him yourself. I, I promise you that's what's going to happen if the kind of horniness or the kind of jealousy that this scenario instills in you is horny jealousy and not anger, fear, rage, jealousy. Yes. I, <laughs> he, he did end up meeting her for a drink and they just kissed and I was definitely super horny when he got home and we talked about it, but then, you know, definitely moved. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's so hot and that's why I don't want to say no. It's just, like no, he's at work now. He said she's there and that like overwhelms me. It's like, is this okay? <sighs> yeah. That's a scary aspect of it, that there's so much contact between the two of them, that that is yeah. something that you're going to have to process with your husband around boundaries and right. around expectations, what she expects uh, of him and from him uh, and what he disabuses her of. He's no interest in a relationship, no interest in leaving his wife that his wife knows does she know that you know? Yes. Yeah, that was what they talked about over drinks. And this is and not just and he should tell her not only does my wife know, but my wife thinks this is hot. My wife is turned <laughs> on by this so that she knows that okay. you're not sitting at home crying. Right. And that may be a relief to her to know that, that she's not participating in the brutalization of someone emotionally or sexually and, and, and harming his, his right. marriage. But also she needs to know that he's doing this, and by this I mean her also for you right that this thing that he has with her is about his marriage not about the two of them separate from his marriage because it's fueling your fire for each other yeah and it is it's crazy i like that aspect of it so it makes us realize how lucky we are <laughs> <laughs> lady you, you there's a term there's a term for you you know that we talk about cuckolds all the time which are guys who are turned on by their <laughs> wives fucking uh, other yeah, men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a term for the wife who's turned on by a husband fucking other men that's less common uh, and much less in use because the fetish is much less common or the kink. It's cut queen. You are a cut queen. Oh, <laughs> oh my God, Dan. I think that every time when I hear you talk about that, I'm like, is there a name for a woman? <laughs> <laughs> there is. A now new I know on the horse's mouth. <laughs> you wow. are a cut queen. <laughs> You know, the adventure that you're on with your husband sexually, and you kind of arrived at this uh, backwards or, or backed into it accidentally. You know, if he's going to have a yeah. solo sexual adventure and you still want this to be about the two of you, you should look at him and say, what's in it for me? Like, how does this work for me? How does this turn me on? Like, what's the benefit for me and you getting with this woman? And clearly there's a benefit for you here in getting with this woman. I think you should build other benefits for you into it as well other asks okay. that you can make uh, of your husband, unless this is kind of a dom sub queen relationship, which doesn't sound like it is. It doesn't sound like you're submissive to your husband, particularly you're just turned on by him out there being a stud in the world. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to say to him, every time you fuck her, every time you get with her, we need to 
be making an effort concurrently, a, a good faith effort, investing time in finding the woman that we can fuck together if it's not her. Right. So that, right. you know, the, the, the original idea for your fantasy, which was finding someone you can get with together, is still on the table. And not only on the table, it's being advanced at the same time by this other thing that's happening because built into that other thing happening is time being spent and an effort being made on the original idea. Right. That sounds fair. But yeah, I think, you really- should, <laughs> I think you should enjoy this. I think you have stumbled upon your kink. I always, yeah, I was just interested in an open relationship, but this feeling is very new, but I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And Wow, I never thought I'd be honored with your guidance as I go through it. <laughs> Has he fucked her yet? <laughs> no, they they just had for drinks, and she said, you know, this week she wants to meet up, and we were trying to decide, like, am I comfortable with that? Is it a good move now? I think, especially, I guess, ever talking to you, I, I feel ready for them to go do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to a girl on Tinder. I'm not totally desolate I have options and and that's really fun and yeah I feel like as long as I have something going at the same time it'll it'll feel good I think it feels good just admit it admit it you're kinkier than you realized it's not only if you had something else going at the same time would it feel good even if you had nothing going at the same time it felt good it turned you on for him to be out there making out with this woman for him to come home to you after making out with this woman you were crazy horny and jumped his bones immediately, correct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How long have you guys been together? Uh, almost seven years. Okay. People talk about the seven-year itch. People talk about passion <laughs> dropping off considerably in the seventh year. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Sometimes right. there's a big kernel of truth in a cliche. And you're horny for him in a way that people seven years in typically don't describe themselves as horny for their long-term partners. Not because he isn't flirting with this other woman, but because he is. Uh, Esther Perel in her book, which is a it's terrific and everyone should read it. Mating in captivity talks about sometimes, you know, we take our partners for granted. We don't really look at them anymore. We don't really look at them as objects anymore. We're not horny for them in the same way. And then we go out with them and we see someone else looking at them like we looked at them the first time we met them. We see them through someone else's eyes and suddenly we are seeing them again as if we've seen them for the first time, as if we're fucking them for the first time. Suddenly we are horny for them again as if they are brand new, not because they're brand new to us, because, but because they're being experienced as brand new by someone else in front of us. And that's not everybody should have a cuckold relationship or a cuck queen relationship and everyone should be in an open relationship. That's why everybody should get the fuck out of the house together. That's why even if you go home together always, even if you are completely monogamous, that's why you should go out and dance and bask in the attention of others, both of you, and not feel threatened by that, but drink that in. And that's what's fueling your desire for your husband is seeing him through this other woman's eyes and in this case, her thighs as well. Because it's moving toward that. And you you guys are able to harness that energy and make what, you know, in, in a lot of relationships would be outward directed energy and, and make it inward directed. This energy that in a lot of other relationships would be a distraction from the primary relationship and a threat to it. Yeah. You guys have it in harness and it is driving and, and, and reinvigorating your sexual and erotic connection to each other. 
with each other. It's making your marriage stronger. Yeah. So long as he doesn't run off with her. <laughs> so long as you don't run right. off with somebody else that you fuck. That's the promise you have to make to each, with, to each other. And that's where trust and vulnerability come into play. Right. But so long as you're, you are, that horse is in harness. So long as, you know, if you think of that other person, not to dehumanize them, but as a horse in harness pulling the sleigh that you both are in, and if you're not both in it together at the same time, that's awesome. Right. That's awesome for you. Congratulations. You have a wonderful wow. bouncing baby kink. Enjoy it. Thanks, Dan. I'm I'm going to. You're amazing. I I feel honored to talk to you about this. I really feel so much better. Oh good. I'm <laughs> glad. You. I'm glad. And tell your husband he can send me a thank you box of chocolates and some flowers to uh, my mailing address. Hey Dan, twenty three year old bisexual from Canada here. Um I had a question regarding my relationship, which is actually going really well. I'm so, so in love with my boyfriend. Um, problem is, I guess, he's, uh, I guess, my cousin-in-law. My uncle is married to his aunt. Our sides of the family are incredibly different. Uh, they're very religious and we're very not. <laughs> um, so basically, my, my question is, he, he's, he's been blatantly lying to his family. Um, I've heard over the phone. He's told them that he's he's staying here in my town uh, with some friends, and uh, he's been asked if he has a girlfriend or something over here, and he says no. Him and I are very different. I'm up here things and tattoos and colored hair all the time. And last Christmas, I took my girlfriend at the time home for Christmas to our hometown, and his aunt was there and met her, and I'm not sure she knew the um, extent of our relationship, but I think it's fairly clear that they know about my uh, history with women. I just don't know how to approach this. Every time that he has a conversation with his family that I overhear, I just get dark and gloomy and, and just feel really upset for the next day. And it's like this cloud hanging over our head. Like it's this uh, secret. I'm this secret and I don't know why. I'm a, a very good person, but he, every day that he lies to them and, and I'm not mentioned, I just, I just feel very put down. You open with, oh, it's going so well. It's going really well. We're so in love. You don't mention how long you've been going out, something I think people should always mention when they ask questions, but you don't mention how long. Just really in love and going so well. And then there's that pause. There is that epic pause when you begin to describe those phone calls, those phone calls that you overhear where he is talking about how life is going for him now in the city where he's in now. And he begins to lie and tell lies of omission and you are the thing being omitted, perhaps because of the piercings and the tattoos and the colored hair and the bisexuality. And it's painful to you. Listen to back the back the show up, back the show up, listen to your own call, listen to that pause. There is so much pain and grief and hurt in that pause. So you know what? Things aren't going really well. And this person that you are in love with is treating you in a way that makes you feel not loved. And you need to go and tell him that. You don't mention whether you've discussed this with him. The time has come to discuss it with him. He may be just avoiding for now a conversation that he knows is going to be awkward and fraught with his family where they're all going to freak the fuck out. And he is just kicking that can down the road in his own mind without realizing that there is a cost to that, that there's a price being paid, that kicking that can down the road by lying about 
being in a relationship with you by lying about not being in a relationship with you is hurting the person that he's in love with and damaging his relationship with her. Because in time, that hurt that you can detect in that pause, it's just so palpable in that pause, is going to turn to anger and resentment and bitterness. It is going to scar over. And at that point, it's going to be too late for the relationship to fully recover. Maybe you guys can power through it and it'll heal over and it'll be a little scar, but you'll get past it. Also possible that it becomes a gaping, seeping wound. I'm sorry, I'm beating this metaphor to death. Also possible it becomes a wound from which the relationship never recovers. So go to him. Tell him this needs to stop now. He needs to over up and have this conversation with his family and stop treating you like some dirty secret that he's keeping. Because what that says to you is that he is ashamed of you. And it may be what you'll hear from him is he's not ashamed of you. He's afraid of them. And then you need to say to him, stop being afraid of your fucking family. Start acting like any 14-year-old gay boy who just came out to his parents. Start showing some fucking courage and nerve. Start being an adult and standing on your own two feet and stop hiding and telling secrets, especially when what you're hiding is me and us and the love that you profess to me, about me, for me. Bullshit. The end. It's over. It, it is hurting me. If he continues to lie, then what that tells you is he's more concerned about his aunt's opinions and more concerned about his parents and his religious family of origin and their opinions than he is about your feelings. And once you know that, once he's demonstrated that, you're in DTMFA land. Then it's over. Then you got to dump the motherfucker already. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller who was messing with her boyfriend's feelings. I agree. Uh, she was the asshole here. And I just want to say this is a big problem for a lot of young bi girls especially having straight girlfriends who act super gay with you, like holding your hands, kissing, cuddling, even messing around, who turn around and then get mad at you for rightly assuming that they're interested in us sexually or romantically. It makes us feel ashamed and less likely to come out to other people in the future. So straight girls, please stop using us as experiments and don't mess with our feelings because it really hurts. Thanks. Hi, Dan. This is about the gay tween caller with the uh, breast issue. I just wanted to let him know to give him a little hope. There are a lot of people out there with this condition already. It's called uh, chubby people. Um, so basically, there are a lot of gay guys with kind of effeminate bodies. Some of us have hips. Some of us have what some people would call breast. Of course, we're still men, but we do have what you mentioned as a blended body type. And there are plenty of people that are into us. Um, so I don't think he'll, you know, obviously he's going to have some trouble, but just hang in there and you will find someone that is attracted to your body and loves you for who you are. Hi, I'm calling in regards to um, the most recent episode uh, where the woman was concerned about touching her clit during PIV and having to use her masturbation reel in order to get off. This question relates so strongly to my own experience. and I'm so glad that she called. And I want to add that I've found a way to overcome that specific issue for myself, which is what you had suggested, Dan, which is to do a lot of dirty talk and bringing the fantasy out into the sex. And I've managed to do that with my partner doing like kind of a half and half where I do still have kind of some stuff going on in my mind, but I'm also talking, I'm engaging him. And I also get on top. Like I feel like the more engaged that I get and more kind of active and dominating that I get with my fantasy reel and with my dirty talk, the better the sex is. So I just want to say to that woman, take charge. 
and have fun. And I was where you were and, and things are getting a lot better for me. So thanks. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Want to see my amateur porn film festival? Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when hump is coming to, in, or around your town. Want to read my weekly sex advice column? Look for Savage Love in the Georgia Strait and other newspapers all around the country. Want to impeach the motherfucker already? Go to itmfa.org to get the gear and to support the ACLU Planned Parenthood and the International Refugee Assistance Project. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Randy Krager on Twitter at Randy Krager. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth at home and here in Austria. And Nancy, we will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.